word is proclaimed, that we may be led into your truth, that we may be taught your will, and that we build our lives on this unshakable foundation of you, Jesus Christ. And as a result, Lord, that we would be filled with joy, encouragement, and peace, all for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, Philippians 1, verses 1 through 11. Follow along as I read. Uh, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. And together we respond to the word, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So living in Lawrence, Kansas in the spring of 2008 was amazing. Our KU Jayhawk basketball team made their way through the March Madness brackets and won the national championship, as you might recall. Uh, fast forward to seven years later, our closest Major League Baseball team, the Royals, whom I grew up following and, and cheering for as a Kansas City kid, uh, they won the World Series in 2015. Now, in the aftermath of these victories, we felt great delight, excitement. We, we couldn't wait to get our hands on a championship t-shirt, to talk with our friends, to recap all the details of the game and relive the victory, right? But not too long after the confetti was cleaned up and the parade routes were reopened, did we feel that, that emotion, that excitement evaporate. For what we felt was a great deal of happiness but not true joy. I mean, maybe we'd say we were joyful, but it was an imposter joy. Now, if you've read through the book of Philippians at all, you probably remember one of the main themes that Paul speaks about in this letter is joy. Now, I'm guessing most of us in this room would say we want more joy in our lives. Like if I asked us to raise our hands, which I know don't typically do here, but you know, we'd all say, yes, please. Give me some more joy. I'll take some. I don't, I've met many people who are like, I'm good, Tyler. I don't need any more joy. Look at me. I'm overflowing with joy. We all want this, right? But we often mistake joy for happiness. And so it's important to understand the difference. Happiness is generally something we all want, but it's based on circumstances. I'm happy if I get a green light. I'm happy if my team wins. I'm happy if the sun's out and it's a beautiful fall day. But joy, biblical joy, is not based on circumstances, but it's deeper, it's more profound than that. Joy is an inner quality of delight 
in God, confidence in his goodness, and resting in his work that's not necessarily tied to our circumstances. Because your circumstances, they can elicit joy, but don't confuse the two. One author defines joy this way. He says, joy is an inner peace and rest based on what you know to be true, resulting in a life of thankfulness and, and expectancy. And so this morning, I want to ask two simple questions of the text before us. I want to ask this first question, why is Paul joyful? And you might be like, well, he doesn't speak to it that much, but he does refer to it in the end of verse 4. Why is Paul joyful? And second, how can we have joy? So those two points will frame my sermon this morning. Why is Paul joyful and how can we have joy? And there's a tension here. There's a tension here. There's kind of an elephant in the room to be addressed. It's the fact that Paul has joy in a time in his life where he is shackled up in a Roman prison writing a letter to friends of his hundreds of miles away. And he says, I'm making my prayer with joy. How? How can he pray with joy considering his present circumstances? And I believe our text shows us three reasons why Paul can have such joy amid the difficulties in which he finds himself. The first reason is this. Paul has joy because he's thankful for their fellowship or their partnership, as he says, in gospel ministry. Uh, Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. See, the church in Philippi was founded by Paul and his traveling companions during his second missionary journey, and you can read of this in, in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts. And this church is different than the other churches that Paul founded. He had a unique connection with this church in Philippi, it seemed, a very close relationship with them. I mean, did you notice how he speaks of them? Uh, He says he holds them in his heart and that he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. That word affection really means like bowels or intestines, like there's this deep, deep longing that he has for these people. And I mean, how much more yearning can you have when you compare it to the love of Christ? And he calls them in in later in chapter 4 his joy and his crown and that he longs to be with them. Now contrast that with how he describes his feelings for some other letters and churches to whom he wrote, like the Corinthians, for example, where it says, where he writes, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Or you might remember his letter to the people in Galatia. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He says, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. You don't get that tone in this letter to these people at Philippi. Now, we have to remember as well that these are actual people reading this letter. I know it sounds a little obvious, like duh, but but this isn't just like a book written that would sit on a library shelf. This was written and to be read in front of people at a church. These were people who Paul knew, who he loved. He had a special bond with them. And what better way to get bonded with people than to have shared gospel experiences together? And that's exactly what happened. You know, I mentioned you can read about the church in Philippi in Acts 16, and there there are three kind of key gospel experiences as this church began. The first, you might remember, her name was Lydia. Lydia was converted She was a seller of purple goods. 
So she was probably fairly wealthy. She had gathered by the riverside to pray with people, and Paul came along, and as he preached the gospel to them, the Bible says Lydia's heart was opened, and she believed in Jesus, and her house actually became this sort of hub for ministry for Paul. She saw what the power of the gospel could do, and she wanted to partner along with Paul in enabling him to do that. And then right after that, we read of a young girl in Philippi who was demon-possessed, and she began to follow Paul and his crew around shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation, which wasn't false, right? But for days and days and days, she followed them around. Now, I have two young girls that live under my roof, a teenager and a preteen, and uh, when they use their outside voice inside, which sometimes they do, it can get kind of loud and piercing. And you can imagine for days and days somebody following you around yelling this. And so the scripture says, Paul became greatly annoyed, which I, I get it. So, so he rebuked the evil spirit and drove it out of her. And this young, this young woman was freed. She was freed. She was being used also by cruel men making money off of her divination. And so they reported Paul to the authorities, which leads to this third kind of key gospel experience in the establishment of this church. Paul and Silas were accused of disturbing the city of Philippi, so the magistrates had them beaten and put in prison. And at midnight, while they were praying and singing worship songs to God, there was an earthquake, and they were set free. And the prison guard feared that all the prisoners had escaped, and so his life was in jeopardy. And so he pulled his sword out, intending to kill himself. When Paul cried out, do not harm yourself. And the jailer was scared. He was fearful. Apparently he knew who Paul was, knew he was a, a gospel preacher. And so he asked, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells him very simply this gospel message, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And so he believed. And his whole household, along with him, believed and were baptized. And so these moments, this, this, these are the people uh, that, that began this church to whom Paul wrote this letter, Lydia, a demon-possessed girl, and a prison guard. And these people and others are most likely who Paul has in, in his mind as he's writing this letter to them. And they had entered into a partnership with Paul that went well beyond just praying for him. Flip over to chapter 4. We read in verse 10, Paul says, <clears throat> I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received, I'm sorry, revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but, but you had no opportunity. And then down in verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So it's a unique partnership that these people in Philippi had with him. And then in verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. See, they not only prayed, but they sent him help. They sent him people. You read in chapter 2 of Epaphroditus, who was sent to help Paul while in prison. They sent gifts, financial and otherwise. This church had been taught about true fellowship and what that looked like. It involves not only praying, and I'm not belittling praying, that is an important key part of this, but it also involves giving of resources. 
sacrificing for one another. And this kind of partnership is what brought Paul joy. And, and not just because he had his needs met, but, but because this thing that Paul is most concerned about, the gospel going out and people meeting Jesus and repenting and turning to him, that's what this church was passionate about. And that's what we should be passionate about. It's what we've been called to do by Jesus himself. In Mark 16, he says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And see, their partnership with Paul was from a distance. And after Paul had had left them, they didn't see each other, but for another short time during his third missionary journey. But while they were far apart geographically, they were still close. Because being united in Christ, it's a bond like no other. Christian fellowship, that word, you've heard the Greek word koinonia, possibly. It's, It's not like a social club. It's not like a sports team or a book club or an affinity group. Christian fellowship is different. It's different. And and why? Well, it's different because God, as he draws people together, it's, it's his starting, it's his idea, it's his work. As he pulls people together, he draws them through his word and by his spirit into a fellowship of faith. You see, it's by faith that believers approach and embrace Christ together as we participate and share in his sufferings as well as his resurrection and future glory. And it's a fellowship where none of us can claim a status higher than the other. Um, if you want to flip over to Romans 12, you can. Uh, Romans 12, 5. <clears throat> I'm sorry, 12, 3 through 5 says, for, this is Paul writing as well, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. There's a unique bond that Christian believers have that that the body of Christ have. It's a fellowship where we love one another, we sacrifice for one another, we help each other, we pray for each other. And it's a fellowship with a task. Like we have, we have a job, we have a work to do, right? We have a work of proclaiming the gospel as, as we reach out to people, as we love people. We reach out to the poor, the needy, the widow, the orphan. We support missionary work. We go on mission trips. We're witnesses of Christ's work as we live in our neighborhoods, as we go to work, as we go to school, carrying the hope of Christ to a hurting world. It's a fellowship even in separation. Because while we might be apart geographically at times, and while we might be apart from other believers around the world geographically, we know we are united in Christ and have the same identity, the same purpose, the same Father. And see, this past semester uh, with the high school youth, um, I decided to, to take up the topic of relationships with them to help them see and talk about, like, God has designed us, right, for relationships with Him and with each other. And so we kind of unpacked what that means and what that looks like, and I, I tried to help them see what a unique thing youth group is. It's an opportunity where they have to build friendships with each other that's not based on a common love for a sport 
or an activity or a certain like, but it's based on a person. It's based on Jesus. And so as they look, can look around the room at youth group, what they do is they see a variety of personalities, right? A variety of gifts and abilities, and they see different schools represented. You go to public school, you're private, you're homeschooled, whatever it might be. And then to know that they have this bond together of being brothers and sisters in Christ. So there's no room for pride, right? There's no room for excluding others, for making fun of each other, but, but only room for serving and loving and encouraging each other. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a part of a fellowship like that? And that's what we as believers, as the fellowship of Christ, share together that kind of gospel-centered fellowship that I, I pray brings us joy, but it also brought Paul joy as well. He says in verse 3 and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And notice, this thankfulness that he has, it stems from remembering. Remembering. And I wonder, how often do we miss out on having a thankful heart because we simply forget. We simply don't take time to think, to remember all that God has done for us, all that he's presently doing for us, and all that he has promised to do. We must take time to remember. I mean, if only there was like a holiday where we could take a few days off and like gather together as you know, family members or whomever, you know, maybe eat a big meal, I don't know, cook a turkey. I'm just throwing things out there. Um, now, Thanksgiving, yes, it's coming up. It might not be a Christian holiday, but it for sure is rooted in biblical principles. Psalm 100 verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. Psalm 105, 1 and 2, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing praise to him, sing to him, tell of his wondrous works. 1 Thessalonians 5, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. See, Paul thanks God when he remembers the fellowship that he has, his partnership with them, and it brings him joy. And that would be the first reason Paul has joy. Second reason I would suggest is that he has joy because he's confident God is at work in them. He's confident God is at work in them. Verse 6 and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not always a big fan of like having a, a life verse or, you know, a verse to put on a t-shirt, but mostly because many of them are taken out of context, right, to fit whatever, whatever situation that you want it to mean. But this verse, verse six, is one of those profound, theologically rich verses that leads you deep into the heart of God. I mean, let's, let's take it apart. Let's look at this. Paul says, I am sure of this. Paul has confidence in something. He has confidence, and it's not based on him or his situation, but it's based on this next pronoun we read. I, I'm sure of this, that he. Now, who is he in this verse? You probably know, right? It's God. God himself. God the author. God the creator. God the alpha. He is the starting point of everything, especially the salvation of every person who believes in him. It starts with God, and this church in Philippi, and our church as well, would not exist had God not begun a work in people's hearts to bring salvation and call a people to himself. 
I mean, consider Paul's own testimony. Middle of the day, he's traveling along a road near Damascus, intending to arrest and persecute Christians when the Lord arrests him. Paul never decided to become a Christian. He didn't initiate the work. It was God who did it in him. And it's true of these believers in Philippi, right? Even before Paul went there, um, it's a fascinating event in how God started the work by giving Paul a vision in the middle of the night. Paul had a vision, a man from Macedonia, probably startling, right? Having a dream and you see this man, he calls out to you, says, come and help us. So Paul responded to that vision believed it was from God, and he crossed the sea and landed for the first time in Europe to preach the gospel to those in Macedonia, specifically this place, this town called Philippi. You see, God begins the work, and we read it's, it's a good work. All that God does is good. All that he brings into our lives is for our good and for his glory. Right? Romans 8, 28. Now, it might not feel good, as we read last week in Hebrews. You know, we, we know that, that this says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, even in the painful, difficult things in life, God brings about good. I often call it fruit, right? God will bring it, and it will be good, and, and he will bring it to completion. He'll bring it to completion, which means that if you feel a little incomplete right now, that's perfectly normal. If we feel as a church, we're not where we need to be, that's perfectly normal. Guess what? God is still at work, and we can be sure that what God starts, He finishes. He will complete it. God directs. He ordains. He controls. He moves. He works everything by his providence to bring about his work from start to finish. And so how do you know if God is at work in you? Well, there's a lot of things, but here are a few. You have an increasing hatred for sin, not just around you as you see sin around you, but also in your own heart and life. And you desire holiness. You have a desire to please God. You have an increasing measure of gratitude for, for your life, not just physical blessings, but spiritual blessings in Christ. You want for others to know of this joy that is found in trusting in Jesus. I mean, those are just a few of the things that, that God does in our life that, that you can know He is at work. And even though it's God at work, we're not passive instruments in this process. Because you might be tempted to think, that like, okay, it's God who does the work, and he's promised to complete it in my life, and so I don't have to do anything, right? I can just kind of sit back and let God do his thing, right? Well, not quite. Not quite. Paul will get to this idea actually later in chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, we participate with God in this work. We work with the power of his spirit in us. It's, it's a both-and situation here, right? And I think I can illustrate it uh, this way. You see, when I worked for the phone company and had to climb telephone poles, um, I'm kidding, I never worked for a telephone. You're like, I thought I knew what you used to do, Tyler. 
I never worked for the phone company. Um, and nor have I ever climbed a telephone pole, just get that out there. But in the event that you need to climb a telephone pole, uh, and you don't have like a bucket truck or a scissor lift, or I don't know what else, you, what else they do nowadays, there is a way to safely climb a telephone pole. And the trick is to lean back, to lean back. See, people that have to climb these things have these big leather belts around their waist and it goes around their body and around the telephone pole and they've got these long metal spikes for shoes. See, climbing a pole is really easy, I've been told, as long as you can lean back. If you fail to lean back, if you grip that pole, your spikes will not dig in and you'll slip. The tension of your belt loosens and you begin to slide down the pole, as you can imagine, receiving unpleasant splinters all the way. So it's not until you learn to lean back, which is counterintuitive, and let your weight rest on the leather belt and let your spikes dig in to the wooden pole that you can actually climb up. And it's similar in the Christian life. God wants you to climb. That's why he saved you, that you could grow, that you would mature as a believer. He saved you. In Ephesians 2.10, for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. And he's going to teach you to climb by resting on him, leaning back, trusting in his power and his grace in your life. Because there are times where you'll be tempted, you will be tempted to hold on, to get a bigger, better grip rather than leaning back on the belt, but you're only going to get covered in splinters. And God will do it because he knows that's the, the only way to climb. And he'll keep you and he won't let you quit because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And that day of Christ that's the third reason why Paul can have joy, because he has the right perspective on life. Notice the horizon to which Paul is looking. His, where are his eyes fixed? Not just the end of his life, praying that, oh, you know, he would just be done with his prison life, but the, he looks even farther towards the return of Christ, when that final transformation will take place, when he'll be made like Jesus, with the resurrected, perfected body. See, the work of full salvation, of complete restoration will be realized on that day when Christ returns. We sung about it this morning. This is how a man shackled in a Roman prison, probably awaiting his death, can have joy. What is he looking at? He's looking at the day of Christ, the day of his return. That's his perspective. As pastor, author Martin Lloyd-Jones says, what ultimately matters in life is not so much the things that happen to us as the way in which we look at those things. What ultimately matters in life is not so much the things that happen to us, but the way in which we look at those things. See, Paul's joy was found in looking at all of the circumstances in his life, and in light of the coming return of Christ, he had hope. He refers to it again in verse 10 where he says that they may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That is his hope and it was, it was his hope and it is our hope and that should never leave our view. It should never leave where we are looking. So why is Paul so joyful? He remembers their partnership. He remembers their fellowship that he shares with them. He's confident that God's at work in them and he has the right perspective. 
So for us, is it possible really to have that same t- type of joy, that same kind of joy? Is that, that's something saved for like super Christians like Paul, right? You know, just Paul, you know, like, is that, or how can we experience that? Is that promise for us as well? And I'm guessing there are some here in this room that maybe feel like you're in your own version of a Roman prison, dealing with health issues, dealing with financial stresses, dealing with relational tensions, anxieties, fears, wondering where is the joy gone? And while we're not a primitive first century church like those believers in Philippi were, we are humans like they were experiencing the same kinds of sin and struggles as common to man. We struggle with loving people well. We struggle with filling our minds with God's truth. We make poor judgments, how we spend our time and money, we waste. We're often impure, we're guilty of transgressing God's law, and our lives do not always show evidence of the fruit of righteousness. So what's our hope? How do we have joy? Verse 11 comes through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. I would suggest the way that we get joyful assurance of God at work in our lives is to look at what Paul prays for this church. And it's a prayer that that we should all and can all be praying as individuals and as a church. What is this path to experiencing joy? Verse 9, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. See, I'll stop there. Not just love as an abstract idea, but love that's actually tangible, that's real, and how we worship God and how we give and how we love each other, how we serve each other, how we lay down our lives for each other, and that our love would abound. I mean, if, it, if the source really is through Jesus Christ, it's an endless source, right? It can grow greater and greater in measure. And that this love is with knowledge, because without love, our knowledge could lead to arrogance, could lead to pride. This word for knowledge actually specifically means spiritual knowledge, knowledge of God's word, filling our minds with the scriptures. And this captures both the head and the heart, right? The mind and the emotions, love mixed with knowledge. And he says, and with all discernment, Not just knowing good from bad, because we can generally know, yeah, that's good, that's bad, but knowing important, discerning important from unimportant, right? Because love without discernment can lead to burnout. I mean, we have eagerness, right? Enthusiasm to serve God. We want to love others. We want to give. We want to be involved. And that sounds good to do everything, but we're limited. There's only so many hours in the day and there's only, only so many resources available. And so we must pray for discernment to know how we can love each other well. And then verse 10, he prays, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Approving what is excellent, knowing what's vital, what's important, and moving towards it. Knowing what to leave out and ignore, and then what to engage in. And Paul hits this point in chapter 3 where he basically boils down what's most important in life. He says in verse 10, to know Jesus, 
and the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings and to become like him in his death. And you see, as we do this, as we pray for this, as God works this in us, as we abound in love with knowledge and discernment, our lives will be filled with fruits of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ. Remember, it's through Christ. That's our confidence. Because if we rely on ourselves for all of this, we will be sunk. I mean, there's no way we can abound in love on our own. It has to come through Christ. There's no way we can grow in knowledge and discernment on our own. It has to be through Christ. There's no way we can be pure and blameless on our own. It's only through Christ. And as people come into contact with us, then they will see evidence of Christ at work in us. And it will be, as the uh, end of verse 11 says, to the glory and praise of God. That's how we too can have joy. Finally, I want to end with a little part of Jesus' prayer that he prays the night before he's arrested as he's praying to his Father in heaven in John 7, 13. And this is, you know, if I were speaking to teenagers, I'd say, this is cool. But this is profound, really. This is profound as he, Jesus prays in John 17, 13. But now I'm coming to you. He's talking to his Father. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus' prayer was answered in the life of Paul, and it's answered in our lives. As we remember, as we give God thanks, and we remember what is the path to joy? It's that our love may abound. We love God and love each other. And that we have knowledge, that we commit ourselves to regularly be in his word, growing continually, leaning back on him, trusting in him, and that we would have discernment and we would be able to prove what's excellent and be able to serve one another, love one another with the strength that he gives us. And let's pray. Gracious God, you have called us to love you with our whole heart, our soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so please empower us to do that in the places to which you call us. Our prayer is the prayer of Paul's, Lord, that that our love would abound more and more, that our knowledge of you and your word would grow, that you would give us discernment and decisions, situations that we face, and that we would approve and pursue only that which is excellent and important for our growth and holiness. Jesus, we thank you for making us pure and blameless. Thank you for your work on the cross, that you've redeemed us, that you've purified a people for yourself, and that you are the one who's at work in our lives, causing us to bear fruit. And so, Jesus, we trust you're at work, and we trust in your promise that you will carry it to completion, all that you're doing. And so we pray for our church this morning. We pray for, I think, of just the partnership we have with our missionaries, and we pray that they would have joy in serving, knowing that we are with them in the mission of the gospel going out to the world. We pray for our next pastor, and we thank you for the work our, our search committee has done and is doing. We pray that they would have great discernment as they meet and talk to people, that you would be preparing our next pastor and his family to come to Lawrence in your timing, Lord. We pray for those sick and hurting among us, 
Lord, I lift up to you my son Calvin, who is having surgery on his leg tomorrow. I pray for your mercy in his life, that you would strengthen him, uphold him, that all would go well with the surgery, and that he would heal quickly. We also lift up uh, prayers for the Avila family this morning as they mourn the sudden death of Vince's dad on Friday. Um, Please comfort them. Be near to that family as they grieve that loss. And God, be glorified in that situation. We also pray for those experiencing financial hardships, emotional difficulties, those who doubt and question their faith, perhaps, whether you're really real, God, please reveal yourself to them. Bring answers, assurance, bring help, bring comfort in those situations. And we also pray for safety this week as people travel, perhaps, for the holiday. Lord, please help us truly to stop and to take time to remember all that we're grateful for and that we would give you praise. And we ask all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.